We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to be looking at uh, a passage that I referenced uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in our series on God's will for your life. And uh, I just made a, a passing uh, comment, reference to this, to this text, and as I was just thinking this morning of what would be uh, a good follow-up to to our series on the will of God and how to discern the will of God, I, I thought this passage would be uh, very helpful for us to go, go through and, and to really consider um, how we plan uh, in our lives. We, we talked last week about a five-step process for making wise, God-honoring decisions, and so we're always making decisions uh, in life, that's just part of life. But we're also always making plans. Um, that's just a normal, natural part of life. We're all constantly planning uh, where we're going, uh, who we're going to see, what we're going to do after church today, what we're doing tomorrow, this week, next month, next year. Uh, these are. Uh, this is just a normal part of. Of, um, of life. And so when, when making plans, uh, we, we typically consider certain things when uh, all the factors really involved in, in making those, those, those plans, the, the various options. And yet when, when we fail to do that, there are certain things that, that uh, sometimes we fail to take into consideration when planning. And when we do that, God gets totally left out of our plans. And we don't want to be guilty of that. That's what was happening with the Christians that James was writing to. They were bragging about all the things that they were planning on doing in the future. And yet they were being awfully presumptuous because they had completely ignored God in the planning process. And so James confronted them and really their presumption by showing them the things that they had failed to consider when planning their lives. And so let's look at this passage together and, 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 and let's see these, these things that we usually fail to take into consideration when we make plans, and hopefully we won't fall into the same trap as the people that James is writing to here in James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Father, I thank you for this text and how practical uh, it is for our lives, because uh, every day we're making plans. Uh, if it's uh, for this afternoon, this evening, for tomorrow, for next week, for next month, for next year, it's just a way of life for us. And Lord, we do not want to leave you out of our plans. And so I pray as we consider this text, Lord, that you would help us to learn uh, how to uh, keep you in mind at all times, whenever we're making plans, uh, so that you would be honored and glorified through our lives and through our plans, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
what I want us to see this morning are six factors to remember and keep in mind whenever we're making plans so that God does not get left out of our plans. Six factors to remember, to keep in mind, to consider whenever we're making plans so God doesn't get left out of our plans. And so if you grabbed your notes on the way in, hopefully you can just follow along with this outline. It's a very simple outline and then have a great time this afternoon or this evening looking through um, those application questions, whether it's with your family or uh, individually in your own quiet time, maybe tomorrow morning or with your grow group tonight. I I trust that this will uh, stimulate some great conversation and great prayer time and great application in all of our lives. So what are these six factors that we need to consider whenever we're making plans so that God does not get left out of our plans? Number one is the incapability of man. The incapability of man. Notice verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That expression, come now, was James' way of of vigorously demanding their attention. As he was writing this letter, uh, maybe they had fallen asleep uh, in the process. He wanted to make sure that they were wide awake uh, and, and didn't miss what he was about to say next. And so it's as if he shook them to wake them up to tell them something very urgent. He says, come now. You who say, and James was referring here to the Jewish merchants, uh, which uh, was a very common custom to travel from one city to another to set up a shop and make some money and then uh, tear down shop and move on to the next city. And so James here was mimicking their presumptuous attitude as they made their future plans. That come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and, and make a profit. It's like they had the whole lives planned out in front of them. Now, James wasn't rebuking them for making plans. There's nothing wrong with wise, careful planning. In fact, God expects us to plan responsibly for our future. The problem with these guys is they had not included God in any of their plans. They they didn't think they needed God. And so James painted a picture here of some aggressive, assertive, high-powered, highly motivated businessmen who were so sure of themselves, they were so confident in their own ability, so dependent on their own ingenuity, so certain that they were going to make money. They thought, that they thought that in and of themselves they were fully capable of com- accomplishing whatever they set out to do. However, what they failed to realize is that apart from God, they were incapable of doing any of these things that they had planned. Jesus himself said that apart from him, we can do what? What? Nothing. John fifteen five. Psalm 127, verse 1, the psalmist says this, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in what? In vain, who build it. And so because they failed to consider their incapability, they they didn't see the need to include God in their plans. And I think too often we're we're guilty of doing the same thing. We, We map out our lives, if you will, without ever consulting God. We're so consumed with what we want to do that we never consider what God wants us to do. And as we 
go ahead and we pick a church or we choose a college or we pursue a career, get married, have children, adopt, buy, sell homes, expand our portfolios, spend our time and money with, without ever seriously praying about God would, what God would have us to do. I want you to think of something that you're planning to do sometime in the near future. You've been making some plans uh, to do something, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe six months from now, next year. Let me ask you this question. Have you seriously and sincerely prayed about it? Have you asked God to help you accomplish it? Have you asked him if it's what he wants you to do? And I would submit to you that if you haven't done those things, then you are worse than an atheist. You're like, an atheist? What are you talking about? It doesn't get any worse than an atheist. Well, we know what an atheist is, is is, is someone who denies the existence of God. However, I think what is more common is people who say they believe God exists, but then live like he doesn't. It's called practical atheism. There's probably more practical atheists in the church today than there are atheists in the world today. And you may not deny that there's a God, but you defy His will for your life by never even considering Him in the planning process. For example, how do you respond when your plans don't work out? That all happens to all of us, right? We make plans that don't work out. How do you respond? Do you get upset because things didn't go the way you planned? Do you pout because your expectations were broken? Do you stress out and run around and try to fix it so that it does happen the way you wanted it to happen? See, if we respond in any of these ways, when, when God chooses to redirect our plans, that's evidence that we are resisting His will for our lives. We show that we want to do what we want to do more than we want to do what God wants us to do. And so the first thing we need to consider whenever making plans is our own incapability to make plans and even to follow through and accomplish plans apart from God. Secondly, we also need to consider the uncertainty of life. The uncertainty of life. Notice verse 14. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Here the the Jewish merchants, having their future planned out for them, they could leave happy and healthy one day on their journey, and the very next day they could get robbed. Their servants could get sick. Their, their, Their camel could get a flat tire or come up lame, or they could have some storm come out of nowhere. They didn't have all the, the radar and things that we have in those days. And, and so his point is, you, you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. You, you've got the next six months, the six years of your life, but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so his point is that life is full of unforeseen circumstances which we have absolutely no control over. Any number of things could happen to us that will instantly and completely change our lives. And we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. 
we all have plans, probably already, what we're going to do tomorrow and what our day is going to look like and our schedule, and, and, and uh, it may be a day like every other Monday, right? But it may not be. But who knows? You don't know. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Only God does. And so we need to keep that in mind when we're making plans, this, this uncertainty of life. I'll never forget the, the event in my life when, when the truth of this passage became so crystal clear to me. Uh, it was when we were in college and, and Kel and I were uh, dating, right? We talked about that several weeks ago and how God used that to help me uh, understand a little bit more about how to discern His will. And, but we were, we were dating at the time and so we were going to go home together uh, for the summer and, uh, and so we uh, got together with some other friends. There was these four other girls they were heading up to the northwest, up to Washington, and so we thought, hey, let's just all carpool together, and, and uh, we had these two cars, and uh, Kelly and I were in one car, and, and these girls were in, in, this, in this other car, and this, this was an old, uh, if you guys remember this, the, the old Fury, was it a Plymouth Fury? These, these huge monster cars, the steering was about this big, you know, and it's this old, dilapidated Fury, Plymouth Fury, and, and just this big old bolt, boat of a car. And so, so we were driving up the coast together and just enjoying the sights and, and excited about being done with another semester and going home for the summer. And, and, and we, were, we had all of our plans. We were going to stay here this night, we're going to stay here this night, and then we're going to make it back to the home this night. And, and it had the whole trip planned. And as we, were, as we were driving out of Coos Bay, Oregon, with our blizzards in hand, because you had to stop at Dairy Queen anytime you saw one, right? So we had our blizzards in hand, and we're driving out of Coos Bay, Oregon, and, and we're just kind of cruising along, and it was nighttime, maybe like 9, 10 o'clock at night, and we were almost to the place we were going to stop for the evening, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and I was just, I was keeping these gals in, in the rearview mirror the whole time we were driving, and it's been, we're, we're already three quarters of the way up the coast, and and, uh, and so I just kept watching their lights in the rearview mirror and eating my blizzard and talking to Kelly and looking at the lights. And, and then I looked back at the rearview mirror and their lights weren't there. Now that's strange. So I just kind of slowed down a little bit. You know, sometimes it's hard to eat a blizzard and drive a, a Plymouth Fury at the same time, you know. So I just slowed down and uh, they didn't come. And I thought, that's strange. So I pulled over to the side of the road and waited. They still didn't come. And so I thought, hmm, that's maybe they broke down or something. And so I turned around and we started driving back down the road, and sure enough, I saw the headlights on the side of the road down there on the left side, and, 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 as, and I didn't think anything of it, and as I approached, I realized that the car was upside down, and we pulled up next to the car, and the, the car was smoking, and the, and, the, and the horn was stuck on. It was one of those eerie moments, and all I saw when I got out of the car was this one leg pinned between the roof and, 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 and the seat, and, and the whole roof had flattened. The car was flat. The, the, the whole roof part had already just, just accordioned into the whole body. And all I saw was this leg, and I thought, Lord, have mercy. I mean, I literally got down at the back of the bumper of that car and just began to cry out to God that he would be merciful on these four girls that I thought were in this car. Dead. And... Uh, the first car that came was an off-duty uh, police officer, paramedic, and uh, that was uh, the providence of God. And, um, and, then, uh, and, then, and then as I'm praying, I looked up, and, and there were three girls standing around me. I'm like, where did you guys come from? Well, we got out. We crawled out. And, and there was one girl who was still stuck in there. Thankfully, she was alive, and, and uh, she just had to go to the hospital and get a, a neck brace and a brace, I think, on her leg and 
had a little bit of a head injury, but uh, anyway, that, that whole experience, God, God was very gracious. In fact, I still keep pictures of that car that was, uh, we took some pictures in the junkyard, because we just left it in a junkyard somewhere on the coast, of the, on the Oregon coast. I mean, it was, it was completely demolished, totaled, and it was a miracle that these girls walked out alive. But I'll never forget that story. We had all of our plans set. Everything was, we were just cruising along, having a great time. The last thing in our minds was that somebody was going to get in an accident and almost die. And yet, the very first passage that came to my mind as I reflected on that incident was, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't even know what it's going to be like in the next five minutes. And so we need to keep in mind at all times the uncertainty of life. We also need to remember the brevity of life. Not just the uncertainty of life, but the brevity of life, the shortness of life. Notice uh, the second part of verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a what? A vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This is a, a graphic illustration of the, the shortness of life, the, the word vapor. I mean, just think about the steam from the kettle when you're maybe making some, some tea and how that just goes and it's gone, or when you go out on a cold day and you, and you breathe and you can see your breath and then it just dissipates, or that early morning mist on the lake, it's, it's there and just a few hours later it's gone. And so this is just talking about the, the shortness of life, which is a common theme throughout the scriptures. In fact, look back at, at Psalm 39, uh, Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. David even wrote about this, Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. He goes on, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. How's that for an encouragement this morning? You are nothing but a breath, a puff of air, a bubble. Kids, you can relate to the bubbles, right? You, you, you blow those bubbles and, and, and they're there just momentarily and they, they poof, they're gone. And you don't know when that's going to happen. Some of them last a little longer than others. Some, some pop right away. But you don't know. That's the brevity of life. Your life is, is nothing but a bubble. Psalm 90, Moses wrote about the transitory nature of life. Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You turn men back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept away, swept, swept them away like a flood. They will all sleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. And then he goes on in verse 10, As for the days of your life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? And then here's the conclusion, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, it's wise to recognize, to keep in mind the brevity of life. That you don't have tomorrow promised to you. None of us do. 
And so just keep that in mind. I don't think we should live in fear of that. We just need to acknowledge that. Which leads us to number four, the fourth factor that we need to consider whenever making decisions, whenever planning our lives, is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And really, that stands in contrast to the incapability of man and the uncertainty of life and the brevity of life. Ultimately, we need to acknowledge and recognize and consider and remember the sovereignty of God. Verse 15, he says, instead, instead of what? Instead of saying that you're going to do this or that and go here and there without acknowledging God, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that and go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That expression there, if the Lord wills, uh, is a humble confession of and submission to God's sovereignty over your life. And we know what sovereignty means. It, it means that God is in absolute control over everything. Sovereign. He reigns over all things. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord sits on his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty reigns over all things. So what does that mean? There's no such thing as fate, destiny, survival of the fittest, luck, chance, coincidence, or even an accident. Next time you're driving down the road and you see an accident on the side of the road, you say, well, that wasn't an accident, that was a providence. It wasn't an accident, it was a providence. And so... James' point here is when we qualify our, our plans with the statement, if the Lord wills, we're acknowledging that God is the one who is ultimately in charge of our lives. But more importantly, we're expressing our willingness to submit to whatever God's will is for our lives. In essence, what we're saying, when we say if the Lord wills, what, what we're saying is this is what I'm planning on doing. But my plans may not coincide with God's plans. And if he chooses to change my plans, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to be bitter about it. But I'll gladly accept it because I'm convinced that God is a whole lot smarter than me and that his way is a whole lot better for me. That's what you're saying. God's a whole lot smarter than me and his way, his will, his plans are a whole lot better than my plan. So God's will is not something to be endured like some bad-tasting medicine. Like, hey, take your medicine, kids. And you're like, oh, man. It's like when Kelly comes to us and says, hey, drink this thieves. You're like, oh, don't, don't make me drink that stuff, you know? <laughs> Those of you that use it are laughing, okay? I know. <laughs> but that should not be God's will. Our reaction to God's will, no, no, please don't make me take that, right? It's something to be embraced like a treasured friend. Like, hey, kids, here's some brownies. You got another one, right? Can I have some more? Now, I don't think that James was expecting us to mechanically repeat this phrase every time we tell someone what we plan to do, like in an obnoxious sort of way, like, well, Lord willing, I'm going to finish this sermon, and Lord willing, when it's done, I'll pray, and Lord willing, uh, I'm going to walk down these steps and go to lunch this afternoon, and Lord willing, I'm going to get in my car and go home, and Lord willing, I'm going to, and Lord willing, and Lord willing, I don't think that's what he intended here. It wasn't to be treated like some magical formula. The Greeks in, in, in James' day said, if the gods will it, that's what they would say, almost as a magical incantation, if the gods will it. So I don't know that he intended us to use it all the time. Paul used this phrase 
a number of times in his letters when sharing his, his future plans. Uh, just a few examples would be Acts chapter 18, verse 21. He says, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19 but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. He said it again in 1 Corinthians 16, 7. He said, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So we see Paul, it was part of his vocabulary, it's the part of the way he communicated his plans of going places and, and seeing people. Um, but there were other times when he was sharing his plans that he didn't preface it with his phrase. So the point is, you don't have to say it all the time, but I think it's important that we remember the sovereignty of God ultimately trumps our plans. And so the way we can remember that is just by saying, hey, Lord willing, that's what we're going to do. And so we need to remember the sovereignty of God. Number five, we also need to recognize the audacity of boasting. The audacity of boasting when we don't acknowledge the incapability of, of man, we don't uh, remember the, 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 um, the, the insec- uh, uncertainty of life or the brevity of life, and we don't remember the sovereignty of God, we are guilty of being audacious and boasting. Notice he says, uh, verse 16, but as it is, because you don't say, if the Lord wills, we'll live or do this or that, you're just saying, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this as if you're ultimately in control of your own life. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. That word boast was a a word that was used to describe a a wandering quack uh, who bragged about cures that weren't really cures and who tried to impress people by claiming that he was able to do things that he couldn't really do. You're like a wandering quack walking around saying you're going to do all this stuff you're boasting, you're cocky, you're arrogant, and you have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, you boast in your arrogance. The, it, the idea here is a, a boastful self-confidence in your, own, in your own strength, your own skill, your own wisdom to, to plan out your life and to accomplish those plans. James' point is, is it's extremely audacious to to brag about what you're planning to do. It it communicates to God and others that that you think you're in control of your life and and that you can go and do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. And James just comes right out and says, all such boasting is what? It's evil. It's aggressively and viciously evil. It's totally unacceptable to God. I can't think of a better illustration of this type of arrogant, audacious attitude and what what God thinks about it than when he casts Satan out of heaven. I mean, Satan is the the author, if you will, or the, 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 the originator of pride. That was the original sin was, was if you think about it, it wasn't uh, mankind in the garden, it was Satan in heaven. And it was a sin of pride. And, and listen to Isaiah chapter 14. And this is, this is the, the, the heart of Satan, the prideful heart of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13, 14, and 15. 
But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the Mount of, Mount of Assembly in the recess of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. That's known as the five I wills of Satan. And so you are satan- it's satanic. Can I say it that way? It's satanic. It's like Satan when, when you are arrogant and audacious and talking about, I'm going to do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. And God's like, oh, really? Watch this. <laughs> There's another good example, of maybe a more relatable one, is Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Talk about a guy that completely ignored God in the process of making plans for his life. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? In other words, God had blessed him with a bumper crop and had more than he knew what to do with it. And so he began to reason to himself didn't pray about it, didn't say, hey, God, thank you so much for blessing me this year, and, and what do you want me to do with all this? How can I help others and be a blessing to them like you've been a blessing to me? He said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry." I mean, can you see how self-focused this guy was? God wasn't even a part of the, the equation for him, making all these plans. And he was just saying, I, I can kick back and, 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 and have it easy here. God says, really? Verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? And so we need to be careful that we consider the audacity of, of boasting, that we don't want to be guilty of, of what James is talking about here, this, this, this arrogant boasting that is just simply evil. And then finally, the last consideration that, that James gives here is the iniquity of neglect, the iniquity of neglect. We need to consider this. In verse 17, he says, therefore, in other words, he's about to make a summary statement, a lot of what I've just said He says, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, now you know the right thing to do. Now you know. And if you don't do it, what is it? You're sinning. The right thing, he he says here, to to the one who knows the right thing to do, okay? The right thing refers to, to humbly acknowledging our own frailty, and God's sovereignty, and planning our lives accordingly, including God in every plan we make. And he says, if you, now you know the right thing to do, and if you don't do it, it's sin. So, in other words, neglecting to include God in our plans is not just a small oversight. It's what? It's sin. It's a sin of omission, as we call it. And there's a difference. There are sins of commission, which are, which are the bad things that we do that we know we shouldn't do, 
Those are the sins of commission. And sins of omission are, are the right things that we don't do that we know we should do. That's a sin of omission, and that's what this would be. It qualifies a, a sin of omission. God holds us responsible and accountable for both kinds of sins. sins, not just the things that we do that we shouldn't do, but also the things that we should do that we don't. And this would be a sin of omission. What was James' point? He didn't want God to get left out of our plans. And so he warns us here not to take anything for granted, but to give serious consideration to these six factors whenever we plan anything in our lives. The, the incapability of man, the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life, the sovereignty of God, the audacity of boasting, and the iniquity of neglect. Now, obviously, we just parachuted right into the middle of the book of James, and you may be wondering, how, does this, how do these verses fit into the overall purpose of, of James' letter? I think James' point was simple. The book of James is all about giving uh, evidences or tests uh, to see whether or not uh, you have genuine, true, saving faith. And so it, he, he gives evidence after evidence after proof after fruit of genuine saving faith. And so one of the clearest indicators that a person has, has genuine saving faith in Christ is that they include God in their plans. In other words, a true Christian doesn't leave God out of their plans. They, they eagerly seek out His will and they willingly submit to His will or His plans for their life. They, they want to do what God wants more than anything else. Listen to some other verses, Mark 3.36. Here Jesus defined who he considered to be a member of his family. In other words, who's a Christian? He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 7.21, Jesus gave this strong warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Ephesians 6.6, 6, Paul described Christians as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. 1 Peter 4.2, Peter exhorted Christians to live the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And then 1 John 2.17, the Apostle John reminded believers here that the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In other words, all these verses say the same thing that James was saying in this passage, that the distinguishing mark of a genuine Christian, a genuine believer, is they obey God's will. They do what God wants them to do rather than what they want to do. Listen to what Jay Adams has written in his book, A Thirst for Wholeness, about plans. And I think this is very practical, um, very helpful counsel for all of us. Listen carefully. He says, how you make plans tells you much about your relationship to God. Maybe you never thought about it. You, you just make plans without even thinking about it. I just make plans all the time. You're not even thinking about it. But guess what? How you make plans tells you a whole lot about your relationship to God. It's no small thing. How important he is to you in everyday life. That's exactly what it proves. How important is God to you in everyday life? If you're largely a Sunday Christian whose faith has little to do with the rest of the week, then you will see no place for God in your planning. Hopefully we don't have any of those Sunday 
uh, Christians here that what happens here stays here and what happens out there stays there and, and there's not much connection between uh, the, the world of church and the world that you live in. He says the real test comes in what you do with the plans once made. Not so much in the making of the decisions or making of the plans. It's, it's what you do once the plans have been made. The attitude you take towards your plans and the way you treat them is all important. You get what he's saying? It's not so much how you make plans, but what you do, your attitude towards those plans once you've had those plans made, once they're locked in. He says that's what gives the clearest insight into the vitality of your faith. It's easy enough to put formally correct lines on paper, but to be willing to have them scratched out and scrawled over, well, that's quite a different thing. You must learn to plan with a holy caution. You must develop enormous flexibility. Ooh, that's not fun. You must plan according to your best understanding of biblical principles applied to circumstances as best you understand them. But because you're both sinful and limited and because you do not know specifically what God's will for you may be, you must always submit your plans to God for his blue penciling. In other words, for him to change it, for him to edit it then you must expectantly await the Holy Spirit's additions and corrections all the while anticipating them with excitement. Like, not, hey, I made my plans. God, don't mess with them, okay? I like them. I like my plans. Don't mess with them. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, right? We think we know what's best for our lives. No, he's saying anticipate with excitement that God may have different plans for your life. But guess what? His plans are better than your plans any day. He says, taking God into your plans will keep you from ever thinking that your plans are final. When you plan providentially, by the way, the people in James were planning presumptuously. He says, when you plan providentially, depending on God to providentially handle your plans as he sees fit, God will review what you've done make his alterations, and hand them back to you for your good and the good of his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the practical teaching of your word, and it's just right here in front of us, Lord, and so many of us, we just make plans without even thinking twice, and, and that's just what we do, and Lord, I pray that today we would, this would be a helpful for, reminder to ha- make sure that you don't get left out of our plans, and ultimately, Lord, that we would submit to your plans for our lives, knowing that, that your plans are way better than our plans. And so I pray, Lord, that um, if, if we need to apply this message this week in some way, that some plans that we've made don't work out the way we had hoped, that, that Lord, you will have equipped us this morning through your word with the necessary truth uh, to, to know how to respond. Uh, in a submissive way and, and to rejoice in your sweet providence and, and, and your sovereignty over all things. And Lord, that we would respond in, 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 the, in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.